W-P-H-A-T. You're listening to the number one health and wellness podcast, the place where health and consciousness connect perfectly, perfectly healthy, healthy and tone, tone radio, radio, radio with your host, Darren McDuffie. And now prepare to get fat. What's up, peeps, and welcome back to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. I'm your show host, Darren McDuffie, alias Fat Man, because I help you become perfectly healthy and toned. Today, we have a really good episode with Joy Burke Sanchez on her book, The Pursuit of Happiness. You're probably asking yourself, what the heck does happiness have to do with my health? And I'm going to tell you everything, 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 because a lot of us are actually unhappy with our jobs. We're unhappy maybe even with our spouses. We're even unhappy about our parents or even unhappy about our kids. And the thing is, is when you're unhappy, this has a profound effect on your health because whatever is going on in the inside will definitely show itself on the outside. So Joy and I get in depth on her book about really some strategies we can use to really improve our relationship and improve our outlook on life. What you'll learn on this show is why do our relationships tend to go wrong? What, What actually happens? Another thing is, should we even even try to pursue happiness. When you pursue something, it seems as though you will never get it. So I asked Joy that question right off the bat at the beginning of this interview. And then how do we attract everything? How does this come about? Joy and I get again in depth on this and we go really, really deep. This is this episode you probably have to, you probably have to listen to a couple of times just to get it. And these are some teachings that I ran into that have really improved my life. So I wanted to share them with you on this episode. Now, if you haven't gotten a chance, I would also like to encourage you to go back and listen to the episode before this one with Dr. Carolyn Mine on different bodies, different diets. Really good episode. If you're someone out there who's on this perpetual diet, you may want to listen to that. The next thing is go to the new website, perfectlyhealthyandtone.com and scroll down, look for the little blue box that says, Be Perfectly Healthy and Tone. Enter your name and your address and we'll be in touch. Otherwise, enjoy the episode. Joy Burke Sanchez, welcome to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. How are you? I'm great, Darren. How are you? I'm doing good. Glad to have you on. We are discussing your book, The Pursuit of Happiness, today. And I noticed that your background is in psychotherapy. So tell me how does someone like you get into talking about the pursuit of happiness, talking about the law of attraction, some other things that we are going to discuss today? Okay. Well, I've been a psychologist, psychotherapist for many years. I was in private practice in New Jersey. And the thing that I noticed was, of course, being a a psychotherapist, people would come to you not being happy. So I guess being happy was one of my prime concerns for people. Instead of, I found that um, doing regular psychotherapy just wasn't working. People would reiterate all their problems over and over again, and they seemed to be stuck in their problems. So I myself started branching out into what would be considered by many to be paranormal. And I also had an interest in physics, and especially in quantum physics. And I know that the two of them don't sound like they have anything to do with each other. But as I started getting involved in what the universe actually is made of, what is it what is going on? Who are we? What do we want? And that that led me to a different way of doing therapy, which led me to more and more paranormal things. And then I married the two and it made perfect sense. 
So I got out of doing regular psychotherapy and um, started doing law of attraction work. And hopefully people responded and became really happy. Good. So the start of your book, or in the Constitution, where it says life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, your mm-hmm. book starts out the same way. And I'm wondering, when we are in pursuit of something, it's usually it's if we're never going to catch it. Why did you name your book The Pursuit of Happiness? Okay, I'll, I'll tell you something I haven't told anybody else. When I started writing the book, I had other kinds of uh, working titles, happiness and creating happiness and, you know, living happy and happily ever after, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't know what I was going to name it. And then in the middle of the night, I got hit with the thought, the pursuit of happiness. And I said, you know, I think that's true because that's for people who are beginners, who are novices, they are pursuing happiness. That's what they're looking for. And so I guess the title uh, was right. I I didn't question it because I never question these things that come to me in the middle of the night and went with that title. Now, in the book, what I noticed was that you kind of make no bones about is about the fact that this is a process for you. You are constantly discovering being happy or how to be more happy. Why is it you think through your years of psychotherapy and psychology that most people just aren't happy? Most people don't deserve to be happy or believe they don't deserve. Definitely they deserve it. They don't believe they deserve to be happy. And there's a lot of reasons for that, which I do mention in the book. But if you listen to what goes on in television and in books and whatever, everything promises you happiness with the next achievement or the next new relationship or losing a few pounds or getting a facelift, whatever it is that they're trying to sell you, that's going to make you happy. And we both know that that's all nonsense. So, you know, that's why people aren't happy because they they think they're supposed to be a certain way in order to be happy. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about that later because there were some things that I discovered in the book that I think that uh, people need to know. And it's some things that I discovered over three or four years in studying this stuff. And I'm not going to kind of make it a secret that I don't study this stuff because I have been studying it for four years now and it's really changed my life. But Mm -hmm. you talked about physics and quantum physics and kind of marrying all of this together. How did you shake off the woo-woo aspect of this whole thing? Because you come from your society psychologist, you come from uh, that background, and for someone to get into what you're doing now, it's very woo-woo, but how did you end yeah, up shedding that, shedding that stigma? Well, I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what happened exactly. I was very, very scientific and very, quote, objective in my reality. You know, reality was taste them, touch them, feel them, and all the rest of that stuff. What happened was I was in a class, took a class in comparative religions, and we had to pick a topic to write a paper on out of the hat. So I wound up with a topic called reincarnation. And I said, oh, my God, how do they ask such a realist, such a scientist to write a paper on reincarnation? And I was in my early 30s at the time and very, very set in my ways, didn't believe in a higher power. I would I would have called myself an atheist. And I started writing this paper. And because I am who I am, I had to investigate everything about it. And by the end of the research, I said, oh, my God, there are very intelligent people who believe this stuff. I must be missing out on something. And so I started with that. 
and then went into all kinds of other things like the Seth material. I don't know if you're familiar with the Seth material. Uh And I just started branching out and I still couldn't figure it out, but I was always interested in quantum physics and particle physics. And I knew there was so much more going on than I understood. And, And then, which I don't have in the book, I had a friend who was a physicist and told me about electron microscopes where nothing in the universe is solid if you put it under an electron microscope. And and that just blew me away. And that was the start of the whole thing. Yeah. And I didn't care what people thought. <laughs> yeah, you get to that point because I'm at that point now. But you talked about the electron microscopes, which gets us into understanding vibration. And for mm-hmm. you in the book, that was kind of the missing key. Explain to us what vibration is and why that was a missing key for you and kind of when you discovered that, that kind of brought everything together for you. Yeah, um, I couldn't understand how living in this physical reality, as I thought we did, and quantum physics, which said nothing is really real with a capital R. And even if you think it's real, when you pay attention to something, the reality changes. And I use in my book the idea of putting a thermometer into a pail of hot water to measure how hot the water is. And this physicist friend of mine said to me, the very act of putting the thermometer in the water changes the temperature of the water. So we really can't measure anything because just looking at it and testing it actually changes it. And this was a whole new concept to me. And then we started talking about everything being molecules in motion, being vibration, and that our eyes translate the vibration that we see, and our ears hear the vibration that we we hear and they translate it. So I'm thinking to myself, this goes back many years, and I'm thinking to myself, how in the world does this work? And I could I really couldn't figure it out. Like I said, I got involved with the Seth material and he said we create our own reality, but I didn't know how I created. I understood that I did create it. I just didn't know how. But finally, I heard about vibrations and the law of attraction work and that was in perfect harmony with the physics. And I finally had my aha moment where I said, "Yes, It's all vibration, and we translate it, and we are vibration. That was an important part, too. We are vibration, so that when we think and we feel, we are putting out vibrations. When we expect things, we are putting out vibrations. They're attracting like vibrations from the universe, and and that's how you create your own reality. So our our thoughts kind of dictate our feelings. So if you are having these negative thoughts, which most people, 90% of people have negative thoughts all the time. Mm-hmm. So most yeah. people are not feeling good. Because I know I used to be one of those people. I just didn't mm-hmm. feel Me good too. all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. now I'm learning that my thoughts are creating my feelings. Talk a little bit about that and what is the impact when we learn to deliberately think our thoughts versus haphazardly thinking those thoughts? Well, you know, you, you're touching on, on, on two, two different things here, and I don't know how much I want to jump ahead. But yes, our thoughts create our feelings, and then our feelings create our vibrations, and our vibrations attract things to us that in time, if we're really focused, will manifest in the physical world. But there are two different kinds of feelings, uh, thoughts, I'm sorry, that I don't have in the book. One is the thought that you deliberately think, and the other 
is thoughts that you you actually receive them um, when you're when you're thinking something negative or positive you will hook into other thoughts in the universe just floating around there maybe that are very very similar to yours and you will receive those thoughts. So the thoughts you think deliberately, I, I know that's how I started. I, I wouldn't allow myself to look at or think negative thoughts. I started writing about all the wonderful things that were around me. I never gave another thought to the not so wonderful things around me. And I realized that the more I would write about things that I liked, things that made me feel good, the more I would actually receive positive, at least it felt like it was being received, positive thoughts from the universe. And I would feel better and better and better. And it made me remember, even though I didn't want to get, you know, reconnected with it, that years ago, if somebody said something to me or did something to me that I didn't like, I would bring up a litany of things that match that. Well, this person did this terrible thing and that person did that terrible thing and over and over until I got myself so miserable. And I said, if I could do that with negative things, why can't I do it with positive things and feel good? And I realized that I can. Why do you think it's so easy for us to be negative or have negative thoughts rather versus having positive thoughts or good feeling thoughts? I think this is a societal thing. I, you know, I, I've been looking at this and studying this for a long time. And people, the world, the world, how do I want to put this? The world supports mediocrity. Nobody wants to be around you if you're way too happy or way too unhappy. So most people like to be moderately unhappy. And what happens when you're moderately unhappy is you find other people who are moderately unhappy and you start sharing this unhappiness and it grows and grows. And people love to complain to other people that, oh, this went wrong and that went wrong and I have so much stress and I'm sick. And and for some reason, people would rather hear this because it makes them actually feel somewhat better about the own, their own negative things. So it grows and it grows and it grows. Then there's the superstitious part of it. And I know in my family growing up, it was people were going to put a hex on you if you were too happy. So you never <laughs> want It's true. They, they would say we had a term in, in Yiddish called a kinahara. Nobody wanted to be given a kinahara which meant the evil eye was going to come and take away your happiness if you were too happy or if somebody didn't like the fact that you were too happy. So I, I really believe that people in their own misguided way were valuing being unhappy. They fit in more. They were part mm. of the crowd. Nobody was jealous. They had nothing to fear. Nobody was going to put a hex on them. And I think that's why people find it so easy to complain and be unhappy. Yeah, I was going to talk about fitting in because it's amazing how many conversations you're in in your lifetime and you go back and you think about those conversations 
and you realize how after a greeting you might say hey how you doing and then people get into their story and their story is mm -hmm. usually a negative story mm -hmm. i experienced this myself with something you were talking about about not being mediocrity I used to be mm -hmm. in sales for many years in my life. And I remember this gentleman, when I first got into sales, he said, never let yourself get too happy. And he said, never let yourself get too sad. He said, uh -huh. just whenever he said, if you make a big sale, don't rejoice over it too much. He said, if you don't make a sale, don't, don't get it. But I realized in, in what he was telling me is that he was telling me wrong because if I got happy, I would attract more things to me that were good. I would attract more sales mm -hmm. to me. But why was he telling me not to get too happy? And it just says what you just said, that we kind of support this mediocrity or we're looking for the shooter drop, so to speak. And I was always that person. I was like, okay, something good. Something's good. It's happening right mm -hmm. now. But, okay, I'm looking for something that might be something's bad got to happen because something good has to happen. Well, that's part of the happiness anxiety. I have the chapter in the book on happiness anxiety. In fact, I at one point wanted to write an entire book on happiness anxiety, but I didn't I didn't want to focus that much on it. But I felt like I had to put a short chapter in there because it's exactly what you're saying. People were afraid of their own happiness. And they would rather stay miserable than be happy even for an hour waiting for the other shoe to drop because it started creating anxiety in them. This society is very mixed up about happiness. Why do we do that? I mean, why do we do that? Because that was even odd for me thinking back then that, okay, my sales career that I should have been happy because I would have attracted more stuff. But instead, I was so fixated on don't get too happy because something bad might happen. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. what's the human psyche? Why? Why do we actually do that? Well, I think part of it is the deserving end of it, the self-esteem end of it. You know, I don't deserve to be this happy. So I'm going to keep it really quiet. So maybe God won't notice and take it away from me. You know, we all have this different idea of God, which I don't even want to get into now, but there's something in the universe that's gonna, that doesn't want me to be happy because I don't deserve it and it's going to be taken from me. Instead of the universe will rejoice in my happiness, mm -hmm. we're not taught that. We're taught from very young ages by people who had negative vibrations, who were brought up by people with negative vibrations and back and back and back. And so by the time we're, oh, we're at the age of critical thinking, we realize that everybody around us is vibrating negatively. So in order to fit in, which is very important for the human populations to fit in, that we have to you know, vibrate negatively as well. I would agree with you with that. Are we designed to be conditionally happy? Because for me, happiness was, you talked about this a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. Happiness was always right around the corner. It was the next relationship. It was the next job. It was the next podcast. We're on a podcast or whatever. <laughs> right. But are we somewhat designed to be conditionally happy? And are we constantly trying to control those conditions so we are happier? Well, we are all a bunch of control freaks. And we do believe that we can't be happy under negative, what people would call negative circumstances. So I don't know why we believe this. I, I really do think it's because of our upbringing. 
we're always taught that if you if you look good enough and if you make enough money and if you're athletic enough and if you're smart enough and you get enough scholarships or whatever it is, you're going to live a happy life. That's a bunch of nonsense. You know, so I think we're all trying to control the conditions in our lives because we really don't believe that we could be happy under any condition because we choose it. That's very foreign to most people. Don't that, you agree? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And mm-hmm. is that part of really, uh, I've been doing a lot of intentions in my life lately. Like I intend to do this or I intend to do that. or I'll set an intention for something and more so it'll come through. And I know in your book, you talk about Wayne Dyer who just passed mm-hmm. and his book, The Power of Intention. But how can we be more what I would call deliberately happy? Do we have to set that intention? And it, it, like you said, it's something that we choose. How do we make that choice? And is it, and is it a day to day choice or is it something that we say, hey, I want to be happy today, but tomorrow, three days down the road, I'm not going to be happy. Is this something that we have to what I would call claim every day? I believe I believe that we do until it becomes our default position. We all have default positions where we go back to thoughts or feelings or attitudes, beliefs, whatever, that we're used to having. And we have a default position on just about everything that there is. So I really do believe we have to be totally committed to wanting to be happy and choosing it every day and doing the exercises that you need to do or that I need to do Uh, in order to keep that going. But I have found over the years that my default positions are very, very different than they were before. I don't think, and I may be wrong, but I don't think I could ever go back to a vibrational stance that is much, much lower than where I am now. I don't think it's possible. I think I would catch it so fast because I'm one of the very lucky people who know how they're feeling almost all the time. And if I notice that I'm not feeling well, I go meditate, I, I'll, I'll do something that takes my mind off how I'm feeling, and I'll, I'll start raising that default position again. And there's an interesting thing also, I don't remember if, um, if I heard this uh, on a tape or a seminar or if it came out of my own head because sometimes it gets confusing, But in order to choose to be happy, you start wherever you are. And if you were going from New York to to Boston, you would have to face north because if you face south, you would never get to Boston. So no matter how long it takes, you have to begin to face in the right direction. And I think that's what what people have to do. And they're afraid to be committed to something. Hmm. I would agree with you on that one as well, because it's easier to for us to be for us to have our thoughts in there all over the the place versus Mm -hmm. really kind of reeling those thoughts in and being a more deliberate thinker. When we talk about vibrations and, and thoughts, I primarily interview people regarding health. And I think that mm-hmm. health and what we're discussing now, which is what I would call consciousness, are blended mm-hmm. together. Absolutely. How? Because many people don't realize this, that the thoughts that they're having on a daily basis are contributing to the health, either their well-being or mm-hmm. what they would consider illness or sickness. How, how does that come about? Right. 
and also and also mental issues. This is how I I realized that that was absolutely true. But I I didn't start with physical health. I started with mental health, and I realized that I don't know about the main mental or psych, psychological issues like schizophrenia or things like that where you're really psychotic. I haven't gotten that far. But things with depression and anxiety, those kinds of issues which um, comprised most of my clients, I believe came from a belief in saying these same things to themselves over and over and over again. And I do believe, without a doubt in my mind, that you change the biochemistry and the neurology of your brain through your thoughts. I mean, I am so convinced of that, that if people would stop talking to themselves the way they talk to themselves and tell themselves other things, that it may not be tomorrow, it may not even be next year, but they will reclaim a healthy brain. So I'm pretty sure that physical ailments are the same thing. I mean, they told me 17 years ago I needed a knee replacement. Well, I'm still walking four miles a day on my bad knee. Hmm. So, you know, I I really believe that it's a a mind over body. Yeah, I believe that as well. I believe that those stories that we tell ourselves and those stories that we become attached to end up shaping us physically and mm-hmm. also they end up shaping us mentally because we have certain beliefs about us we have certain beliefs about other people about our environment and if we could just let go of those beliefs we would see something totally different miraculous it would yeah. be miraculous you had yeah. a number of influencers um ian ran i guess that's how mm-hmm. you pronounce it and some other people yes. did this was this part of your evolution Like I know for me, my whole evolution has been one thing and then I got into something else and then I got into something else. But Mm -hmm. all along, I realized that it was kind of pushing me forward to where I am right right now. So when you first experienced uh, Ayn Rand's teachings and a number of other teachings that you talk Mm -hmm. about in the book, was this getting you to the place that you are right now? Absolutely. Everything, even though it seemed to be off on its own, was really on the same path. Ayn Rand was probably one of the most brilliant minds on the planet. She died, I believe, in the 1980s. And she was a teacher of mine when she had, um, she was old already. But what drew me to Ayn Rand was she said that a person's meaning, a person's being on this earth was to be happy. And I loved hearing that because I wasn't really all that happy. I didn't have one of these bubbly, exuberant childhoods. And I always believed I should be happy. Didn't know how, but I knew I should be. And she believed we should have been happy. My my objection to Ayn Rand was that she believed only in physical, material reality. And I remember when I first started getting involved in uh, spirituality and maybe an energy realm, she would have thought I was crazy, literally crazy. So I didn't tell her. But yeah, she, she believed in happiness and so did I. And that's what led me to her. You mentioned reality and I want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Is... We talked a little bit earlier about creating our reality. 
Is our reality fixed or is our reality what I would call fluid? Fluid. I was going to use the same word. It's fluid. Our reality is fluid. And you probably read in the book something that I find so amusing that when I look at things by choice deliberately, which makes up my reality, I see what I want to see. And one day I was walking with someone and she pointed out to me a horrible sight. And I was walking right next to her and I did not see it. So in her reality, that that existed in my reality on my own without her pointing it out to me, it didn't even exist. So it You know, that's just a minor example that you create what you see, you create what you hear, and that and that begins to form your reality. And we're doing this through our thoughts. So we have Mm -hmm. what you would call these negative thoughts. Then something is going to appear in our reality. That's what we would call negative. negative. And Mm -hmm. if we're having positive thoughts, something is going to appear what we would call positive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, And it's all how you how you approach things. Because, you know, I use the example of driving in traffic. And when I hit traffic, I say, oh, good. I could listen to, to my, the CDs that I love to listen to for two more minutes. Right. A lot of people don't think like that. And I'm going to pay devil's advocate here uh-huh. because, because, Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> because for someone who's out there listening to this and they know nothing about this, one thing that struck me when I first started with these concepts was that they were way too simple. And <laughs> yeah. for someone who comes from this, I come from a very analytical background. I come from a business it's background, your bottom bottom line. And when I first started, I put them down because I was like, this is too simple. I need something that's a little bit more intricate. Why is it that our minds get hooked up in this intricacy and we can't let things be simple? Well, if <laughs> you know, someone once accused me a long time ago Uh, Let me see. How did I put that? They said to me, you always climb over mountains. And I said, yeah. I said, because molehills are so boring. Okay. (laughs) So you have to make things very, very complicated so that you believe that you've accomplished so much. I mean, this work is so easy. Yeah. But to me, it's, it's the best thing on the planet. If you want to be happy, if you don't want to be happy, then, you know, forget the whole thing. Yeah, I but had to easy. I had to constantly tell myself to let this let it be easy. The more I studied, I was like, I got to let this be easy, Darren. Let this be mm-hmm. easy, Darren. And it I finally easy. Yeah, and I finally just let it be easy, but I, ha- I again, it goes back to beliefs. We have these beliefs that things have to be hard. And I remember when I was in grade school, for some odd reason when I was doing math, I couldn't get estimation. And then one day I just let it go. And I remember talking to this girl on the bus when I used to ride the bus home and she kept trying to explain it to me and explain it to me and I'm like why I was a kid then but I was like maybe if I just let it go and just decide to just just let it be easy and Mm -hmm. for some reason I came back to it maybe two or three days later and estimation I I got it I was like why was I letting why was I wanting this to be so hard sometimes we want things to be hard I don't know why so you feel better about having accomplished it yeah yeah you are exactly right yeah I mean, I, I remember everybody, you know, thinking the harder it is, the more kudos they will receive for accomplishing it. 
I mean, look, we both know, and we've heard this saying before, and I think I even stuck it in my book for whatever reason, they don't build monuments to people who are just happy. Yeah, <laughs> you're right about that. I mean, you have to suffer to have a monument built for you. Yeah, and people are attached to suffering, and I don't I, I don't know why. And I used to be like that. I was like, I'm going to be... The more I suffer, I thought that I was going to get my reward for the more suffering I did. And the universe well, really doesn't work like that. You know, those are those are crazy, and I'm going to say it, religious teachings. You know, if you earn enough brownie points, you'll get to heaven. And the brownie points come in the, in the method or the mode of suffering. So I've suffered so much, you know, I'm going to go to heaven. I mean, so many of us have been taught that from the time we're children. And before you could speak, you know, think critically, you've already been indoctrinated into oh, so many concepts about yourself and about the world and about religion and about God. And it's very hard to shake those off and, and, and turn around and face a different direction. Yeah, you're right about that. Let's get into two concepts in your book, because I know that the audience would want to hear these. And these are okay. things that really change the way I perceive my relationships. And one of them is really <laughs> change. And the fact that especially those people who are really close to you, mm -hmm. that you have to have them to change before you can be happy or vice versa. They have to. <laughs> and that's the thing that really breaks up a lot of relationships, because we when Absolutely. we first enter into a relationship, it's like, oh, this person makes me so happy. And then two, three years down the road, the person doesn't make you happy anymore. And therefore, mm -hmm. it's time to end a relationship. But talk about this wanting others to change to make us <laughs> be happy. And this okay. is self-perpetuating cycle. Yes, yes. To me, this is one of the most important concepts, not only in the book, but in life. And I'll repeat it because I have that sentence in there five times, and I don't have any other sentence in the book five times. Never ask another person to be the change you need to feel good. Yeah. And we do that all the time to everybody we know. If you love me, you would change. Maybe it's just a little tweak here and there. It doesn't have to be huge. If you love me, you would change and you would do this for me and you would be this for me. And this is pervasive in our relationships. And I did not really fully accept that concept until my divorce, because I had always worked with clients and said to them, oh, you have to take them as you find them, et cetera, et cetera. But I really, in my heart of hearts, I didn't believe it myself. So when there was, was trouble in my marriage and he did not change to prove to me how much he loved me, things really went downhill. And when I heard that concept, and I heard it um, from an Esther Hicks Abraham CD, I got spun around and I said, oh my God, every relationship in my life will be so much better if I just let the person be who they are. It's not about me. It's not personal. I don't like if somebody asks me to change. I don't care how much I love them. I'm not going to change who I am. And I'm not talking about, oh, you're sitting and watching television. I'd like a drink of water. That's not the kind of change I'm talking about. I'm really talking fundamental changes. So, yeah, I think that is probably 
in relationships the most important concept in the entire book. Is that an extension of what we would call unconditional love? To be able to look at a condition and still, Mm -hmm. in this question, look at a person as the condition and still say, hey, I love you, even though you won't change. Yes, absolutely. And it's loving yourself enough that they don't have to be continually proving to you that they love you. And most of us don't have that in our own psyches where we know that we're just fine and we don't need the approval uh, of anybody else, whether it be in words or in change. Talking about love and getting into I would call self-love and loving ourselves. You've been involved with people and speaking with them one-on-one when you were a psychologist, psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. Did you find that a lot of people at their base, at their fundamental being, really loved them? No, no. They may, no, I I have to say unequivocally no. The people, well, I had a very skewed population coming to me. You know, these were troubled people. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been in my office in the first place. So I I have met people over the years who really had very, very high self-esteem. But no, I didn't find them in my office. And my specialty was self-esteem. And I realized how much work people had in accepting themselves. And if you don't accept yourself, of obviously you're not going to have self-esteem. They go hand in hand. So no, I would have to say across the board, most people don't accept themselves and don't love themselves because they use other people as a benchmark to how they're doing. So if they disappoint their parents or they disappear, disappoint their husband or their wife or their best friend or whatever, they're not going to accept themselves and hence their self-esteem is going to diminish. Do you think it's it's hard to accept ourselves as individuals is because we have kind of given into this concept that we are all broken and we, we kind of need fixing? <sighs> I, I, yes, we've all bought into that to some degree. If not broken, then at least wrong, okay? I think that that's the biggest false concept that we have is that there's something wrong with us and that there's something wrong with other people as well. So they want to fix us, we want to fix them. And it's a never-ending cycle of dissatisfaction. So I think getting out of that idea And when you see yourself as part of source, which to me is is so very important, you realize there can't possibly be anything wrong with me. I'm made up of the same energy that source is made up of. And all we can do being source energy is grow and expand and learn and be. And that's it. You know, we we can't judge each other because we're we're not judgeable. Going back to just the self-esteem thing. And one thing Mm -hmm. that I used to get caught up in all the time, and we're taught this as kids, is being selfless, like you're always supposed to do for (laughs) others. And when I started really digging into a lot of different concepts, I found that those concepts were teaching me to be more and more selfish. Mm -hmm. And I had some, I would say, confronting feelings about that because you're taught to be one way. And then now as an adult, you're taught to be more selfish. But I I realized Mm -hmm. that the selfish thing is kind of working out for me now. But (laughs) talk about why we should be just a little bit more selfish as it uh, pertains to our happiness. Okay, let me me start off by saying this is something that is very, very close to my heart. And I have to thank Ayn Rand for it. I had always been called selfish by my parents. And I never thought of myself in, 
in those terms. I just knew that I, I wanted to be happy and I wanted to take care of myself. And they didn't want to take care of really the whole world. So Ayn Rand was the first person who wrote The Virtue of Selfishness. And I was very young when I first got introduced to that book. And it made absolute total sense to me. And I've been on a, quote, selfish path all the time. I didn't have to come back from that. But I do know that people will call me selfish if I didn't do what they wanted me to do. And I would always scratch my head and say, which one of us is actually being selfish here? You know, I think they are more selfish than I am because they want something from me that I don't want to give them. So that always, uh, you know, made me think uh, about the term selfishness. Then also looking around you, I realized that people would call other people selfish the same way that they would curse at them. This was a horrible, horrible thing to be because you should constantly be thinking about other people. And that didn't make it make any sense to me. And then I remember Nathaniel Brandon, who was a mentor of mine, bringing up an example about plants. And he said, do you think that the two plants in, in your garden are saying to each other, gee, we really ought to move away from the sun or the nutrients because the plant next to us really needs a lot more of this? Well, of course they don't. They take what they need and whatever the other plant needs, it takes. And so the same thing with human beings. And I've always been in a helping profession. I've always been in a sort of giving profession, but I never did it with the eye on being selfless and giving to the other person. That that was never in my realm of thinking. Yeah, it was a strange concept for me to be a little bit more selfish, but now I'm realizing that it worked all in my benefit because even when mm -hmm. I was what I would consider myself more selfless, I always ended up at some point resenting something I did for someone because exactly. when I wanted something back from them and they, they'd be like, oh, I don't have time or, oh, I don't exactly. have, have it. Then you mm -hmm. end up feeling a lot of resentment. But now it's like, okay, if I don't want to do something, I'll just say, you know what? I don't want to do it. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, one of the wonderful things that Nathaniel Brandon said was nobody wants the fruits of someone else's sacrifice because it makes them feel it makes them feel bad. It lowers their self-esteem to know that somebody is sacrificing for them and they may want it in the beginning, but it does them no favor in the end. So I don't I don't like the word sacrifice. Uh, I don't sacrifice. I do the things that other people might think of as sacrifice, but they're not to me because I value them. A sacrifice, um, as defined by Ayn Rand, is giving up a higher value for a lesser value. Uh, That's a sacrifice. How many of us really want to do that? Are we looking at people from a different, I, I guess from... I, I can't even think of what word I want to use here, but let's say you're constantly doing something from some for someone else. You're you're constantly helping them. We have these charities and these different things, which is okay, you know, to have charities to help people out with different things. But let's say that someone's close to you and you're constantly helping them, wherefore they they don't even help themselves. Are we right. are are we getting into a, a cycle by doing that or are we not looking at them as capable when we're doing something like that all the time? 
Well, you're not doing them a favor. You're really not you're really not helping them and you're not teaching them anything and they will never raise their own vibrations and be happy with you doing all the work for them. It can't happen. It's just not possible. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is are we somewhat lessening their power because we're powerful Absolutely. individuals? Yes, you're lessening their power. You're making them ultimately weaker um, with the with, and you're enhancing their belief that they can't do it for themselves and that they do not create their own reality. You are creating their reality. So when all is said and done, you know you might have dug them out of a hole or whatever but you haven't done them a favor and they may not like you very much when you keep turning them down because they don't understand that whole concept they just think that you're not helping them and that's something that you know people who who believe as you and i believe have to live with and and try to live with it happily (laughs) (laughs) yeah no knowing that ultimately you're doing the right thing yeah so two concepts here, and then um, we're going to kind of end the podcast. I want to keep you all day. But for me, when I discovered this and reading over it again in your book, this was something that was huge. And I don't know if a lot of people understand it, but I wanted you to kind of put some words to it so we can understand that audience can understand it. Motivation and inspiration, because ah. a lot of people <laughs> are very motivated for one or two days. And I remember going to these seminars where I was just, yeah, I'm motivated. And then once I leave that seminar a day or two later, I lose my motivation. But mm-hmm. I'm like you. You like to write. I sit down and I write different things on Facebook and I like I've always enjoyed writing. And I feel like when I sit down in front of my computer and I get ready to type, some days are better than others. Like some days Mm -hmm. things just bam, they just flow. I'm like, I'm typing. I'm like, wow. And then I look back over that and I'm like, did I write that? (laughs) But I was inspired. I was inspired to write it and it didn't feel Mm -hmm. like work at all. And then Mm -hmm. some days it's like, oh. I got to motivate myself to do it. And then I'll, I'll leave it. I was like, nah, I don't want to, yep. but talk about this motivation, inspiration thing. Okay. And, this, and, yeah. this is very interesting because, um, I had no intention of writing a book and I was coming out of a meditation, which I, I do every day. And there it was joy, go write a book. And I said, okay. And you know, I don't argue with things like this. And I went to the computer and I started writing. And there were times that I said, this is purely inspiration. Absolutely 100%. I wasn't trying to fix anything that was wrong. I wasn't trying to fix myself. It didn't come out of a problem. I just wanted to write this book. I also wanted to write a much bigger book. But the funniest thing happened, and I got to the end of what is a very, very short book, and I'm waiting for something else to occur to me to write, and nothing was coming. And I tried just writing um, from my head, and nothing was coming. So I said, I'm not going to do anything for a week. Well, at the end of the week, I went back to the computer and nothing was coming. And I said to myself, that's it. The inspiration is gone. The book is done. And I published it as it was. Motivation always comes from a problem. It always comes from something you want to change. And you get 
if, it, if it's something that um, is very important to you, you get really high as a kite, maybe it's going on a diet, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on this diet and I'm going to, you know, do whatever it is I have to do. And you're really, really, really high. And then it becomes a chore. It becomes a chore and it drags you down and you get unhappy and you really don't want to do it. And it peters out, as you, as you said it does. But when you're coming from inspiration, you're coming from a deep desire that it, it, it's just in you and it has to get done. It has to come out of you and manif- excuse me, manifest itself into physical reality. It just has to and nothing is going to stop it. And the words inspiration actually comes from in spirit. And I really believe you are so connected to source or spirit or however you want to put it, your inner being, that you don't even have a choice here. You become a tool. And when the inspiration is gone, you're back to, to you know, just living your regular life until you get inspired to do something else. So I don't do anything from motivation because I really know, know what the difference is, but I do everything from inspiration. I'll even make a phone call from inspiration. Yeah, I'll do that too. Cause I used to always get these little inclinations to call people and I'm like, why should I call so-and-so? And I would always question it. Now I just call them. I just like, well, just I need call. to come. Yeah. I had that happened with my buddy who's in California. We hadn't talked in a while and I was driving in the car one day and some said, just, just call Greg. <laughs> I just uh-huh. picked up the phone and called him. He would, he didn't answer, but I left him a message and we, we connected and we had a really good conversation. The last question I say is a doozy for for <laughs> okay. for, for me I'll personally because I I've gone I went through this when I lost my mom but um mm. you talk about guilt and I've I, uh-huh. when my mom passed away in 2005 I, I I had an extreme amount of guilt behind that and uh, I ended up letting it go but I real I remember how I used to feel but talk yep. about guilt and is it something that's um, useful to us and I know that you had two different scenarios of things you two different ways you uh dealt well not dealt two different ways to talk about guilt it's two different kinds of guilt there you're talking about the unearned and the earned yes yes okay unearned guilt uh i'm going to go through that you know really pretty quickly is often again a societal or religious uh indoctrination that somehow we have done something that we don't even know what we've done. It's just a feeling that we've done something wrong or that we are something wrong or whatever that may be, which is very, very difficult for people to bring to consciousness and talk about because they don't even really know what they're talking about. They just feel bad and they call it guilt. Uh, In this regard, it is a feeling, but it's been caused by the thought that you have that you did something wrong. And as a therapist, I I loved working with people who could um, bring this to light so we could actually talk about it and watch it go up in smoke because it usually did. Now, the earned guilt is another story. And earned guilt is by your own value system. You know you've done something wrong. And people are funny because they would rather carry that around with them than do what needs to be done to get rid of the guilt. And usually what that is, is own it, apologize for it, and only do that once because it's not up to you how the other person takes your apology. 
forgive yourself and move on because you cannot undo the past. I mean, that's something that maybe you can do it, you know, in some other universe, but practically speaking, we can't do that. So guilt is also mainly a thought. We keep beating ourselves up with thinking that we've done something bad or wrong. And it doesn't do anybody any good to do that. Other people create their reality and you have to own that. You have to own that you might have done something, but they were a co-creator. They were a willing partner if you believe that they created their own reality. So no matter no matter what happened, it was it was not something that you have to carry with you for the rest of your life and beat yourself up with because it does no good. It only prevents you from living a happy life. And and the other people, if they want to continue to be angry at you forever, then they can't have a happy life. But they're not our issue. You know, only only we are our own issue. Yeah. And then survivor guilt. Can I say something about survivor guilt? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. People who have lost other people, and I saw a lot of this after 9-11, where people felt guilty for surviving. And it's very, very difficult to convince people that other people created their own reality as well. Um, I mean, we would say who in the world would create a reality of being in the World Trade Center during 9-11. But that's not up to us to for, for conjecture. We don't know. We don't know how they were vibrating. We don't know anything about them. And if people in your family die and you and you didn't, it's, that's also their vibration and not something that you have to feel guilty about that you're still alive and they aren't and guilt is pervasive in this world yeah i remember um it finally came to a point after my mom passed and i just said you know what dude you did the best you could do in that situation and i let it go and it felt like it was a weight was lifted off of my off of my shoulders this feels like to me, I was going to end the questions, but it feels like to me that we need to kind of, or the audience needs to kind of walk away with maybe some simple techniques that they can use okay. to really okay. start uh, using this. Because of the, for, for a lot of us, we need proof that things work. Because I know when I first came into a lot of this, it's like, I need, to, I need to prove it to myself that this works. What are like one or two simple, really simple exercises that the audience might be able to do in order to kind of, I don't want to say prove to themselves, but. If you need proof, you need actually okay. need proof. Well, yeah. For me, for me, the most important exercises are the list of positive aspects and looking for explain, positive. Explain okay, what that is, is. Just a list okay. of positive aspects. Yeah. Okay. You, I take something, could be anything in my life. Maybe it's my apartment. Maybe it's the movie I just saw. Maybe it's my neighbor, whatever it is. And I make a list of all the positive aspects I can find in this person or situation or thing. And I focus on them. I just focus on them. I, I don't look, I don't weigh, oh, well, this person really isn't a nice person. Um, they may have these positive aspects, but they're really a nice person. I wouldn't even go there. Never look at the negative. Just keep making lists of positive aspects until that's what you see. And when I go out for my walk or wherever I go, 
I just look at things to appreciate. I look at the ducks and I look at the birds and I look at the trees and whatever it is. I go into the restaurant in the morning and they always have ice water for me. And I think that is just so wonderful. So I just keep thinking about all the good and I find more good because I'm facing in that direction. So as I face in that direction, only looking at good things, more and more good things seem to come out of nowhere for me to look at. And when I first started this this work, or if you want to call it work, I don't like calling it work, um, this whatever you want to call it, I would carry a notebook with me. And every time I saw something I liked or something that brought a smile to my face, I would write it down. And I would take my book home after the day was done and I would read it before I went to bed. And that's what I would be thinking about when I fell asleep. And then I'd wake up and I'd do a list of positive aspects. So I constantly put myself in a positive mode. And things began to change. But more importantly than things changing, I began to change. I began to just feel so good knowing tomorrow I'm going to find more good things to look at. And that was wonderful. And I haven't manifested a million dollars, or but I feel wonderful. <laughs> yeah, that's what it's all about. It's just about being happy and, and just feeling, feeling better. A lot of people want to manifest a million dollars in one day, but you know. And you know what? It'll be gone. It'll be gone in a year, and then they'll start over again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but this stuff is so simple yet so powerful and and so mm-hmm. effective. Is it works? But you got to work it. You got to you got to practice it. Yeah, you got to practice it. It works. But yeah. you know, you didn't hit on something that I think is really very very important. That even though people say they want to be happy, do they really? Okay. All right. Do they really want to be happy? Because it's so simple. Why aren't they doing it? I guess I mean, all the people who read my book, Darren, they're not doing the exercises. I guess it's because it's easier to be, it's easier to be, what word am I looking for here? Inertia. It's inertia. <laughs> yeah. But I think also, for me, it took a, I had to be jilted in my life. Like when my mom mm-hmm. passed away, it kind of started these series of events for me to kind of yes. go down a different road. And for most of us, and, that's what it takes. We have to be. And my, divo- and my divorce did it. That's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And some people, even if they go through these events, sometimes they never even hear that that calling because I mean I would put my life up against anybody's life and I would say you know what I had a good life but I had some Mm -hmm. rough rough patches but Mm -hmm. I don't even look out on the rough patches now because I know that those things were helping me catapulting me into something that where where I needed to be it was just some Mm -hmm. kind of contrast and it was where I needed to be Mm -hmm. so um Mm -hmm. it it all worked out in my favor which everything always does always works out for you that's my mantra by the way everything is always working out for me yeah that's my mantra I love it yeah so some people are stubborn that's what I I, I consider And they'll yes. go through certain events over and over again before they realize they're like, hmm, because I had to do that when I was younger. I kept going through the same thing over mm-hmm. and over again. I'm like, oh, well, what is this? What is this telling me? And it wasn't until I decided to make a commitment, like you said earlier in the podcast, to mm-hmm. really be committed to doing this type of work was when I start to see things changing and things are still changing, as I know they are That's with right. you as well. Yeah. But you realize that you matter. 
That is so important. You matter and your feelings matter and, and your life matters. And a lot of people don't seem to to feel that way. They feel like they I, my view of them is that they're hanging out with life. They're not really living it. They're not really loving it or enjoying it. They're just hanging out. I wrote that down, hanging out with life. Okay. That's a good thing. <laughs> but um, we could have a whole nother conversation. And, uh, we could. Yeah, and we, we you know what? I'm going to invite you back because I know that you work with people who were overweight and there's a certain thing that goes with the psyche of that. And I wanted to yes. get you back on at a later date to talk about that whole I, thing. But yeah, but your book is called The Pursuit of Happiness is available through Amazon and other book mm-hmm. outlets. Yes, so, on Kindle also. Uh, Joy, Burke Sanchez, yes. thank you so much for the interview. Thank I really you, appreciate Darren. it. Thank you, Darren. I really loved it. Thank you. Have a, have a great day. Thanks.